Open your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. You'll find that on page 861 if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. And we would love for you to keep a copy of God's Word. If you do not have one personally, take that copy from the seat rack and make it your own. Uh, those, are, those are important words between the covers. I want to give ourselves to them. I actually want to begin, before we even read God's Word together today, just to pray. And uh, two special requests. Some of you saw the news report that our sister church, Gospel Grace, sustained some wind damage to their roof uh, yesterday. The good news is they were able to conduct their worship services today, but still sorting through that uh, bit of damage and what it all means for them so we can keep them in our prayers. And then we also have been praying for Gospel's peace as they have pursued uh, the, the purchase of a building they had what they thought was a really great opportunity to purchase a fire station from uh, the city of Logan, and they put together a big presentation and did some design, preliminary design work and such, and the city turned them down on that. Uh, so it was disappointing, but yet at the same time, they know that if it's not that place, God likely has something else for them. So uh, here we are finishing up a construction project. Uh, one church is suddenly thrust into at least a repair uh, and then another looking for larger space than what they currently have. All of these are indicators, though, just that, you know, we're not in control of our lives, our ministries. God is, and uh, there's a great work to do. So as we pray together this morning for God's blessing over our time in the Word, let's remember gospel grace and gospel peace um, that God would go before them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great truths of these hymns and songs that we've been singing. We're thankful that you are all that you have revealed to us, and you're even so much more. When we consider that you are the eternal and infinite God, we wonder what has yet to be revealed. But what has been revealed to us carries us so far beyond our capacity to comprehend and understand that it is mind-blowing to us. Thank you that you are the Ancient of Days. Thank you that you are the Savior King. Thank you that you are the Good Shepherd who leads us into green pastures and beside the still waters in order that our souls may be restored. We're in need of soul restoration today. And we pray that by the very personal present ministry of the Holy Spirit, that you would restore every heart and soul here today. Some are so distracted and overwhelmed by the cares and pressures of life, perhaps a change of circumstances, perhaps the loss of a job, perhaps a fractured relationship, but some pressure has come to bear in recent days that challenges them at the deepest level of heart and soul. And, and some feel like they cannot see you, that they cannot hear your voice any longer. Oh, Lord God, draw near today and speak that they may know you are near. Speak that they may know that your word still stands true. Speak that they may be assured that all that they have banked on is true and will come to pass in time. We pray for our sister churches this morning 
that look to you for answers and solutions, for peace and guidance. We thank you that there were no injuries in the wind damage to gospel grace last night, nobody present that we are aware of. Thank you that they're able to worship, but would you let this development be quickly resolved and let them remain on mission, focused, at rest, serving you? And we pray for gospel peace that you would lead them to that property of your choice. We know that they were excited about the opportunity and now feel disappointment that that door seems to be closed, but shepherd them for your name's sake and continue, Lord, in both of these ministries and Gospel Light Church as well to draw people savingly to the cross, that people from all walks of life and all backgrounds would know that you are not only the Creator God, but the Savior God. The one who by the death of Jesus Christ has opened a way of forgiveness of all of our sins and eternal life. We beseech you, Lord God, to let your blessing rest upon these churches that we love so dearly. Now give us grace in this next little while to hear you as you speak by your Spirit through this word. Carry us far beyond even where our minds and understanding would take us. Change us that we may be like Jesus. Oh, how we pray that Christ would be fully formed in us according to your word and your good and gracious plan. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, when you're in a hurry and you need something to eat, What's your, what's your to-go place of choice? Not necessarily asking for live, you know, real feedback, but, you know, if you were in a hurry today and leaving gospel uh, hope here and you said, I got to be across town, you know, for family, but there's no food there, I need to grab something. I mean, you'd probably swing into one of the drive throughs that's open. Some of you are really particular. Others of you are like, man, it's food. I just need something. And many of us, I think all of us actually at this stage of life, have grown up in a bit of a drive through culture. And we're used to having food readily available when we need it. And uh, sometimes you don't care about the quality, it's the quantity. And other times you say, no, quality is a little more important. And so even, even quality food is available out the window. Well, in this portion of Luke's gospel, Jesus and some of the disciples are actually on the move and they need to catch a quick bite to eat. And so they do what any other ordinary citizen of that time and location would have done, and that is as they're passing by a grain field, they just grab off some of the grain and uh, apparently rubbed it you know, between their hands so the non-edible part would fall away, and then they're popping hand, hands full of grain uh, into their mouths as they're on the go. See, some of you thought drive-throughs are a really you know, relatively new development. Maybe that concept, but eating on the go is not. Now, this becomes the stage for a bit of a discussion, if not an outright conflict. We're actually in a section of Luke's gospel that began back in chapter 5, where there are a series of escalating conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. And in this section before us, Jesus clearly picks a fight. Why would Jesus pick a fight with religious leaders? 
Well, part of his earthly mission, and some of it we're going to be able to see more clearly as we walk through Luke 6, verses 1 through 11, is that Jesus is not only intent on accomplishing the eternal purposes of redemption, but he's also intent on dismantling every system that raises itself against the gospel of grace. And the system of religion and worship that really has a stranglehold on the culture of Israel at this moment is deadly and destructive. Oh, there are well-intentioned and sincere people who are committed fully to it, thinking all the while that they are actually serving the living God who rescued Israel from Egypt uh, a few thousand, well, 1,400 years before this approximately who gave them the patriarchs, who sent the prophets, who gave them the word. They think they're faithful and true to it, but Jesus knows they are not. And it's not a fight for fighting's sake. It's actually a fight for the souls of individuals who are in the bondage of a a system of self-righteousness. There are systems of self-righteousness all around us, some that are formalized into a religion and some that just emerge from our hearts because at the end of the day, we, like some of these characters that we're going to see, don't actually want anybody else on planet Earth or in the universe and galaxies beyond us to tell us how to run our lives, what to think, what to believe, what to do. So there's this series of escalating conflicts I want you to follow along as I begin to read in Luke 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all at, at, after looking around at them all, he said to them, "Stretch out your hand." And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Two stories. Two Sabbath days, we don't know how closely these occurred, one uh, against the other, but Luke puts them together strategically in this gospel. Now, it would be helpful for us to understand a little bit about the background of Sabbath and the practice of observing Sabbath uh, as it had developed through the years for the Jews. 
If you go back to Genesis 2, uh, you will actually read not the term Sabbath, but you will see the principle uh, being practiced by God himself And in Genesis 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, it describes how God concluded the six days of creation, and on the seventh day, he rested it. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses actually notes that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. That is, he made it separate and distinct from the other six because on it, God rested. And so right out of the gate, there is this uh, principle of Sabbath that emerge, emerges, a day of rest. God created this day, set it apart from the other six as a day of rest. It's also the reason we, even today, observe a seven-day work week or, or a seven-day week. The second thing you see emerging, though, as you come to Exodus 16 is the term Sabbath itself occurs for the very first time. And in Exodus 16, 23, God, through Moses, again, commands his people that he's just delivered from slavery in Egypt, a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So he reemphasizes the concept of rest, but now he speaks of it as a day of worship. And so it's unique. Now, interestingly enough, I didn't even know this until this week. I did a little digging into some of the historical context of the Exodus and learned that there, were, there was a period of time where the Egyptians actually laid out their calendar that in 30 days they had three 10-day weeks. Can you imagine a 10-day work week as a slave in Egypt? Can you imagine never really having a day off and certainly not being given a day you know, by the, the, the slavers that Egypt were uh, over Israel, never having one day where you could just worship the, the God that you had put your faith in. So God's doing a couple of things through the Exodus. When he gives them the law, he's actually building into uh, this word for them and this practice for them a full day of rest. They are free from the curse of earning bread by the sweat of their brow. It's a day for them to be rested physically. It's a day for them to be renewed spiritually. It's a day for them to come into his presence and enjoy the glory of his person. What a release. What a gift. Now, as one author notes, for Western Christians like us, there's a general indifference, he says, towards Sabbath observance. And that can put us at a disadvantage in understanding the importance of Sabbath in Judaism. There were two things that the Jews really held as precious and dear. Two things that set them apart from all the other nations of the earth. One was circumcision and the other was the Sabbath. And both of these observances mark Jews perceptively. The the first in their flesh, he writes, and the second in their use of time. Now, a lot had happened since God gave the Sabbath law through Moses. And several hundred years before Jesus entered the world and began his earthly ministry. There were uh, rabbis and teachers in Israel who initially were very serious about God's law. They wanted to understand it. They wanted it to. They they wanted to apply it and live it out in a way that honored God. But what always happens when we get into uh, these kinds of situations is that we start adding our own opinions. And, you know, all it takes is for somebody we really love and admire and respect to share an opinion. And the next generation elevates that right up to 
Scripture. And so over time, there was a, initially an oral tradition that was passed down from some of the great teachers in Israel, and then it was actually written down. And while on the one hand, no one would ever say, well, this is the Word of God, practically speaking, it was elevated to being equal to the Word of God. One of the terms that you will find for this written record is Mishnah. And if you go back and look at some of what is recorded in the Mishnah regarding Sabbath practice, you will find at least 39 classes of work that profane the Sabbath. Now, some of it you would go, yep, that makes really good sense. Things like plowing your field or hunting or butchering. Those don't surprise us at all. But if you read through this specific list, it also includes things like this, tying a knot. So even getting ready for church this morning, I would have violated what the Mishnah laid down because I'm wearing shoes with laces, and I tied both shoes. So I've already broken God's law according to Mishnah. And when I go home later today and take off these shoes, guess what? I'm going to untie them. Well, that was also on the list. Tying a knot, untying a knot. Here's another one. Sewing more than one stitch or writing more than one letter. You people taking notes right now, stop it. It's a day of rest. We laugh at that because we're like, ha, that's crazy talk. Yeah, but they didn't get there in a day. And over time, initially with a desire to honor God's law, and to be careful with it, they began to build fences around it and more fences and more fences. And actually, they built a heavy, heavy structure that no person could bear and a structure of law that God never intended his people to shoulder. That's the system that Jesus has come to dismantle. But you know, the human tendency, as one author writes, is to confuse our interpretation with the inspired word of God, and there's a difference. Well, that's some of the confusion. And that's what lies beneath this conflict. Notice, though, that there's nothing in Luke's gospel that indicates Jesus actually has broken God's law. Now, he's accused of that, but you have to ask, unlawful by whose standard? And you can't find anything in the Old Testament to indicate Jesus actually was breaking the law or leading his disciples to do that. But what you do see is, is Jesus begins to uh, give some instruction. I need to jump ahead. I should have reordered these. I want to give you that second point, and then we'll go back to the slide preceding it. Notice how Jesus is, is not only living within the law, uh, but he begins to clarify the law. You say, how, how does he clarify the law? Well, look at, look at um, the text one more time here. In verse 3, he says, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? Well, of course they've read the story. That's almost insulting that he would say. But he's not asking, like, have you actually read the words on the scroll? No, he means, have you read with understanding? If this were a court of law, it would be similar to a lawyer making an appeal to a judge on the basis of case law. 
So there may, be, there may not be an actual law that forbids or allows, but there is a preceding judgment that you know, was rendered in such and such a court on such and such a date. Therefore, judge, we make an appeal to you to consider the case law, what actually happened in practice. Jesus is doing a similar thing here. He's going back to 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6, where this particular story is recorded and making an appeal to the precedent that was set in David's life. And so he says, have you not read? Skip to verse 4. Here's are the specifics. David entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Well, if you're, if you're enforcing the letter of the law, David had broken God's instructions for this bread and, and the special nature of that bread being reserved for the priests alone. But there's something greater even in God's heart Here's the reason that David didn't have sin on his hands that needed to be confessed. Here's the reason we know that he didn't lead his men to sin or the priest who attended the bread of the presence at that particular point. And, and this, is the, this is the greater law of God's love, if you will. God is deeply concerned about his people being fed and nourished. And God's Sabbath law Back to the context of Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees, God's Sabbath law was never intended to prevent someone from eating a meal and being nourished. The law was given to give rest, not to starve. The law was given that his people who had been in brutal slavery would be free to worship free to enjoy his presence. Not that they would have to experience some kind of, you know, self-beating, avoiding a decent meal or even something on the go. You know, we are more like the Pharisees than we want to admit. And there's actually a little Pharisee in you like there is in me. We've really been blessed and helped and challenged in our parenting growth group. We've been reading through Paul Tripp's really helpful book, Parenting, 14 Gospel Principles. So I want to go back. Oops, wrong way. He has a whole chapter on law and how parents need to make sure uh, that, that they employ God's law in the right way. God's law is, has multiple uses, one of which is to push us to Christ, but it's never intended to be the end in and of itself, and parents can sometimes do it. I know you're already reading the quotation, so let me just get to that quickly. He says, as parents, we need to be rescued from our addiction to the law. That's the Pharisee within every mom and dad. But what is the law that drives us? Is it really God's law? No, look at these next four words. Our comfort, our pleasure, our success, our control. That's exactly what the Pharisees were fighting for. It's not our children's sin that is in the way of good parenting. It's our tendency to make parenting about our little kingdom of wants, needs, and desires and our tendency to want our children to serve the purpose of our kingdom rather than to submit to the purposes of God's kingdom. And that's at the heart of the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. Whose kingdom is going to win this? Whose dominion is actually going to be established? 
Who's going to be in control? And we're going to see in just a moment how the Pharisees actually use God's law as a lever to do harm, specifically in this case, and that's not how God has designed his law. And parents, let me encourage you, those who've been in the parenting growth group have been walking through this and challenged by it for the last several weeks. There's still time for others of you to join us, by the way. Not this week. Remember what Matt said. It's a week off for praise and prayer. But even as Christian parents, we don't use God's law as a as a lever to manipulate our kids. We don't use God's law to establish our kingdom, dad's kingdom, mom's kingdom. We're about God's kingdom. Some of this reminds me of traditions in my own upbringing. They were taught and practiced with good intentions. And all of us have been through this where you kind of wake up one day and you're like, you know, that's not actually in the Bible the way it might have been presented to me. Say, what kinds of things might you be talking about? Well, here was one. When I was a kid, attending a movie at a theater was sin. It wasn't about the movie you watched. It was actually the location where you were being entertained. And the thinking went something like this. Hollywood produces all kinds of wicked and evil sinful movies. Yep, they do. Nobody should disagree with that. Are all movies that come out of those production studios wicked and sinful? No, not all. Could we say a majority? Probably. So we lay down that piece. Here's a second one. And you know, if you're standing outside a theater and one of your friends happens to drive by and sees you, they don't know what you're going in to watch. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22... That you should not let, or sorry, I'm about to misquote, uh, that, that you should abstain from all appearance of evil. Now that's the King James Version, and you actually need to unpack that in its context. Because abstaining from all appearance of evil makes it sound like, well, that argument that we're building up here might actually stand. But if you dig into that verse or even read it in the ESV, which I do believe is a little clear, what Paul is actually uh, writing to the Thessalonian saints in that first century church, is that you need to abstain from every form of evil because evil appears in many different forms, one of which would be wicked, sinful movies and entertainment. So, so the point of 1 Thessalonians 5.22 is not that you should be really careful about what it looks like you are doing. You should be careful to abstain from any form of evil as it might appear in your life. And there is a little bit of difference. So we met well, but we end up saddling a whole culture with, with an unbearable burden and, and tying consciences uh, in knots about whether they could even enter a building to see something. Now, where we are right now in culture, I think the vast majority of us ought to be far more careful about what we watch, whether it's in your living room or in the local theater, whether it's in front of your computer or with your smartphone, you know, as you wait to pick up your kids in car line. But you can understand how a well-intentioned application turns into law. 
Jesus is coming to correct what actually is an ugly abuse of God's law. Let's look at a third idea in this opening paragraph of Luke 6. You see how Jesus actually takes control of the whole situation by establishing his lordship. It's it's lordship over the law itself. When he says the son of man is lord of the Sabbath, he is claiming far more than just the prerogative to to have a to-go meal. Now we saw this in chapter 5. The son of man is a title Uh, of authority. Dean read a portion from Daniel 7, 13, and 14 where that title, and it actually occurs two other times in that larger section of Daniel's prophecy. The Son of Man is a title that goes back hundreds of years before the time of Christ, and it has reference to the divine Messiah, the one chosen by God. And in Daniel 7, 14, let me read this again for you. To him, that is to the Son of Man, was given dominion and, a, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. But at this moment of conflict, the Pharisees are trying to bring Jesus under their authority and manipulate him into their system and get him to submit to their ideas and their interpretations and their laws. And Jesus won't do it. And he really ends this discussion simply by saying, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is, he, he is not only the one who instituted the Sabbath from the, from the early days of creation, but all laws governing the Sabbath since he is the one who establishes and he knows how to practice them and they are all under his jurisdiction. It is interesting to me that there's no discussion beyond this at this point. I wonder if any of the Pharisees in that particular group felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There aren't many examples of Pharisees who actually came to faith in Christ. There are some. And Luke will make mention mention of, of a couple not only in his gospel but in the Acts of the Apostles. What a powerful moment. It's also a great moment for us to consider, you know, who is Lord of my life and my conscience? It could be the tradition that was handed down to you. Much of it good, upright, moral, we might even say. But is it God's authority ultimately? Sometimes we spend far more time quoting the religious teachers and scholars and pastors and gurus that we admire than the Word of God itself. And we should know the scholars and Bible teachers and such who've been full of the Spirit of God as they've ministered in earthly days, but at the end of the day, not one of them can say, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, let alone Lord of the universe. And there's a big difference. It could be a fear of disappointing a parent or a teacher, even a neighbor that actually governs your conscience more so than the Word of God. But Jesus, when he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, he's, that's just a piece of it. He's actually Lord of all. Now look at verse 6, because this story uh, is given to us strategically 
And we read all of it uh, a moment ago, so I won't reread it in its entirety, but I want you to look at verse 7 specifically uh, because what Jesus is beginning to do here uh, is to expose some hearts. Verse 7 says, The scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. That, that's quite startling, isn't it? Why would you want to bring charges against the miracle worker? Look at verse 8. He knew their thoughts. Well, we've seen this before, haven't we? Yeah, and what Simeon, old Simeon prophesied, it's recorded in Luke 2, verse 35, that this coming Messiah, or actually he was eight days old at that point, wasn't he, when Simeon prophesied, but this little baby who would become this man we're walking with right now, thoughts from many hearts would be revealed. That's what Simeon had said, and it's happening had to be terrifying to these Pharisees. Look at verse nine. Jesus said to them, I ask you, now he's on the offensive, isn't he? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? So those are the categories we need to think in. It, wh- what is lawful? What's God really after in giving us this Sabbath law? Are you gonna do good with this Sabbath gift and save life or are you gonna do harm? and destroy life. And what Jesus, in great grace, is pointing these Pharisees to is that they've actually become instruments of harm and destruction. Now you should know, you would already suspect this, but in rabbinic tradition, uh, it was not only forbidden uh, that someone would straighten a deformed body or limb But even setting a broken limb on the Sabbath was a violation of God's law, according to their interpretation. I mean, can you imagine? It was slippery outside today, and um, you know, let's say on your way to church, you fell down the steps, put out your hand to break the fall, and as you did, you snap your wrist. Well, according to the Pharisees, I know this is it's Christian Sabbath; they had Jewish Sabbath, whatever, but it's church day. They would say to you, wait until Monday. Wrap it up. <laughs> I wonder if they had restrictions on how many times you could wrap a bandage around an arm. You know, as, as obsessive as they are with this kind of thing. Totally missing the heart of God. Totally missing the opportunity before them to do mercy. Author and Bible commentator James Edwards writes, the religious authorities are not only willing to tolerate the lamentable condition of another human being as this man with a withered hand, but to use it as leverage against Jesus. Isn't that evil? Exploiting a man with a pitiable condition as a tool to bring Jesus down. Edwards goes on to write, Jesus does not use people for ulterior purposes. And the test of all theology and morality is either passed or failed by one's response to the weakest and most defenseless members 
of society. You remember the Isaiah 61 prophecy where Jesus read the scroll and among other things talked about the liberty uh, for the captive and deliverance of the oppressed and saying today this is fulfilled in your hearing. I mean he came to minister the grace of God to people with withered hands. We've seen him heal lepers. We've seen him cast out demons who were demonizing and oppressing all kinds of individuals. The record is he's healed many to this point but these Pharisees are absolutely enraged and we will see this in, in just a moment because he doesn't fit into their system and he's exposing the true nature of their hearts as lawbreakers and the lawbreaking is evident not simply because they will not so much as lift a hand uh, or make an effort to see this crippled man healed on a sabbath but they actively use the sabbath day to plot the harm and destruction of jesus that's why he's put the question to them so what are you going to do Well, he knows their hearts. He knows that they are plotting already and they're going to circle up again after this event to figure out a way to destroy him. He knows it. But notice, he's not only exposing their hearts, but he's expressing his heart. And remember, this is the glory of the incarnation. You want to know how God feels about you in your weakness, whether it be of a physical nature or a spiritual nature? Here it is, in flesh and blood. The God of the universe has entered the world and he comes in the weakness of a human body with human limitations and yet divine power still flowing from his heart into the lives of other people and not just to make a point to the Pharisees but to bless this poor crippled man. He says, stretch out your hand. Now, a withered hand like this, we might expect the man to keep hidden, but not at this moment. And another author writes, the man's infirmity could be healed only by exposing it to Jesus. And I was meditating on this and thinking, oh Lord, this this is glorious. Because like the withered hand, the sins in our lives, the sin in my heart can only be healed as I'm willing to lay it before him, to expose it. And whether it be sins of pride or self-righteousness as these Pharisees, whether it be sins of lust or envy or greed or anger, those will only be healed as we willingly expose them to Jesus. We saw him with the paralytic Before he even raised him physically, he said, your sins are forgiven. I don't, I want to be careful. Those words aren't recorded here, but don't separate the the work of God as if sometimes, you know, he's only willing to do this much and other times. But, But notice what happens here. The man responds in faith, four little words, and he did so, and his hand was restored. With a word. Other healings, Jesus touches like he did with the leper, which was marvelous in itself. Sometimes he'll heal people by actually spitting into the dirt and forming like a clay uh, medication, as it were, and applying it to the eyes. Here's a moment where he doesn't lift a hand of his own, as it were. He simply calls the man to stretch out his hand, and in that moment, he's restored. Now, I think there's another reason that Jesus may not have actually done some phys- made some physical gesture or done some physical work 
because at this moment, these Pharisees are filled with fury, verse 11 says. They are literally out of their minds. They've been swept up into an irrational anger. You would think that perhaps they would jump in the line of response that we've been seeing growing through these early chapters of Christ's ministries where words like amazed and awe and overwhelmed are used. But no, these, these people are raging out of their minds mad. And he didn't perform a surgery. He didn't put the man through hours of physical therapy. It doesn't seem he so much as lifted a hand, and yet they're angry. He broke the Sabbath. How hard does your heart have to be that the miraculous healing and the powerful restoration of a crippled man makes you insane with anger? And they're not only angry, look at the last phrase of this little portion. They discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Matthew and Mark in their gospel records of the same event actually say they plotted how to destroy him. And that's the very thing he had just, he had just confronted them on, one of the very terms. So it brings us to a, a point, and we need to pause here. In, in our study of Luke, but I want to ask you to consider very humbly and honestly before God, and not just, Lord, if, is there a Pharisee in me? No, be more specific and say, Lord, where does the Pharisee dwell in my heart? Where am I working hard to establish my own system of law? And it might be in the realm of parenting. Where am I seeking to be Lord not just of my own Sabbaths, but just Lord of my life? That'd be another way to ask the question. Teens, some of you are doing that right now with your parents. Yeah, but you don't know my dad. He's an idiot. But that doesn't, even if he is. (laughs) And we all are. Certainly can be but you're not Lord. Some of you work for an idiot, but God hasn't called you to the role, into the role of being Lord in the workplace. Who will be Lord? There's one Lord, and His law of love has been designed, His law of of love has been designed that you and I would first of all submit to it but use it as a framework for blessing others actually for doing good and not harm for saving life and not destroying it you know if if the spirit of God has brought you to a place this morning of saying you know what I I am trying to be Lord of my own life I'm even trying to twist and manipulate God's law so I can get power, you know, in the home or power and influence in the workplace or power and influence even even in a setting like this, ministry setting, a church setting. And if the Lord in his kindness has stood in front of you today and said, will you submit to me? Do it. Because this kind of legalistic Pharisaism will wither your heart. 
I submit to you that if the Pharisees had humbled themselves at that moment and recognized the heart condition they actually had, that they too would have experienced miraculous healing. As by faith, they stretched that out before Jesus and said, Oh, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Change us. Teach us to walk in your law. The tragedy of this kind of legalism is that it gives you a temporary sense of position, even of meaning. And like these Pharisees, some of you may believe that, well, we really are trying to honor God. But by works of the law, nobody is ever justified before God. There's only one way, and that is Jesus Christ and His gospel of grace. He's picking a fight, but at the end of the day, it's about redeeming people trapped in sin. And that's the sin of self-righteousness as well as the sins of the, of the most heinous immoral acts. Jesus is walking the earth to save sinners of all kinds. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Is there something the Lord, by His Spirit, through the Word, has identified in your life today that you need to turn from? It could be self-righteousness, exactly like the Pharisees. There might be a parent here who's saying, you know, I'm using God's law like a hammer on my kids. I, I feel deep conviction about that. Oh, great, that's such a gift from God when you feel that conviction. So, so will you just respond in faith and confess that and then ask God to forgive you, to show you mercy, because He will. I promise you He will. And then would you just commit yourself, though, to following Jesus, even in your parenting. And in the power of the Spirit, seeking to do good, not harm, seeking to save your child and point him or her to Christ, not, not destroy them. There may be others here this morning who say, oh, I've just, I've so systematized my religion, like I can't even see Jesus anymore and I want to walk with Him. I, I want to be in relationship with Him. Then you just pause and tell the Lord that. He tells us that He will be found by those who seek Him. My third appeal would be to those of you who may be here today and say, you know, I've been religious all my life, but I don't know that I've ever considered some of the things that have emerged this morning in this service. I think I need Jesus in a very personal way right now. Never, never seen that before. 
Oh, my friend, just call upon him. Call upon him from your heart right now. He knows everything about you. He knows what's in your heart. And if you would confess your sins and seek his forgiveness, he would grant it. And if you would ask him to give you a new heart, a new life, the gift of eternal life, he would give all of that. Will you just pray to him right now? I'm going to give you another moment to continue in prayer. But we begin something new today. We've, we've actually formed prayer teams. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Just remain in prayer. I know this personally. There have been many, many moments in my life where I've needed someone else to pray with me. And to be a help and a blessing to you, we've actually formed prayer teams that are now available at the conclusion of every service. And we've asked if a few people, even today, to be in position. I'm gonna ask any member of the prayer team who's here in the room right now, just make your way to the front. And if you're here saying, you know, I, I am praying to God, but I would love for somebody to pray with me. There's a specific need. And it may be something not even related to the, to the, the point of the sermon today or the specific text. You may be here today saying, you know, like I... I have a physical illness that I need somebody to pray with me for. I would love somebody to pray for my strength or my healing, my restoration. We, we will pray for anything today. And if you're saying, I'm in need of prayer right now, I'm gonna invite you while heads are bowed and eyes are closed just to make your way to the front of the room right now and then move to your left side, my right. And there are a couple of members of the of our prayer team who are available for you and you just share with them what it is you want them to pray or how you want them to pray and they're gonna do that. They're gonna do that. And we want you to know this is gonna be available week by week and we trust God will use it for your blessing and for his glory. Will you stand with me please? Stand with me please. Let's close in prayer. Now Father, seal this word of blessing to our hearts and we pray that you would expel from our hearts everything that is not of Christ that you would establish your lordship and your dominion that we may learn to walk with you in joy and in peace even as those disciples walked with you on that particular Sabbath day. Lord, we want to know that kind of intimacy with you, that kind of personal relationship. And we want to walk in the freedom of your lordship. We want to walk in the freedom of a right understanding and even application of your law. Oh, please, Lord God, rescue us from ourselves. And all of these things we pray for your glory, for the joy of your Son, our Savior and for our good. In his holy saving name, amen.